Welcome to the Evolution Exchange podcast, bringing together the best technical leaders to discuss their passions and interests, as well as challenges and ideas. I'm Lee Vickers, and I'm your host for today. I connect businesses with top software and data talent. I'm joined today by a fantastic panel to talk about all things AI. Before we get into the thick of it, let's make our way around the room and allow for some introductions. So Rob, if you want to introduce yourself. Yeah, hi there. So my name is Rob Sanders. I'm currently the Chief Technology Officer of an agency called Fluff Software. Um, Fluff is quite a small agency, but we kind of focus on quite bespoke, usually experiential-led things. So think of tourism sector, things like innovative um, usually graphics heavy designs. Um, but we've also done some kind of more innovative stuff on things like in wearable tech and embedded software as well. Um, and we're actually seeing at the moment a massively increasing demand for like AI led experiences, usually just tapping into existing LLMs like OpenAI and ChatGPT. Um, but like other sort of side tangential use cases of that as well. So very topical for us. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Rob. And Dave? Hi, uh, my name is David Parr. I'm the founder of NGAI. And NGAI is a AI and machine learning platform specifically suited to the needs of the utilities and energy industry. Great. Thanks, Dave. And Sam? Uh, hi, I'm Sam Costello. Uh, I'm head of data engineering at IVC Evidencia, which is a global veterinary care provider. Brilliant. Thank you, Sam. And finally, Christina. Hi all, I'm Kristina Shinkovic. I'm AI and software lead from Small Robot Company. Uh, what we do is we develop robots for precision farming um, to reduce chemical inputs and make farming more economically viable and uh, for the farmers themselves and more sustainable for the environment. That's great. Thank you very much, Christina. So now all we're, we're all introduced, let's move into today's topic. So you all have a question or a statement that you'd like to speak about that focuses on the different aspects of AI. What we'll do is we'll work around the room asking each of you your question and the reasons behind it. And each of you will have the opportunity to give your take on it when we move forward. So let's start with Rob, who had the question um, and wanted to speak to this, the panel about being, how can people trust everything the media shows us with AI advancing so much? So if you'd like to give a little context around your question, Rob, and then we'll move into everyone's take on it. Sure. So when I read about this question, I actually thought it sounds quite conspiracy theory-esque. Um, and that really wasn't my kind of intention. Um, so I'm not kind of suggesting this kind of evil, malicious cabals around the world also generating um, kind of false content, which you never know, it could be, but I'm, that's not really what I'm, I'm more on about um, kind of the accuracy and of the facts that often these models um, produce. So if we take ChatGPT as an example, it is a phenomenally eloquent and powerful tool, something that I use every day. So if, I use, if I'm writing code, I'll often use it um, to help auto-generate code snippets and, and things like this. Um, but it will also predict things which are completely incorrect but appear to be really, really coherent and really, really, they, like they could be facts, essentially. Um, and it appears to me that it seems uh, as a media organization or as a platform, so take Facebook or Twitter today, um, their job has become exponentially harder um, because not only do you have people saying all sorts of stuff on all sorts of fringe elements. You've also now got content which has come from potentially a non-human source, um, which is very often hard to tag as this has actually come from an AI, not a human. Um, and it's also quite hard unless you've got reams of people doing it to, to fact check this stuff. Um, I actually asked ChatGPT this exact question to see what it would generate. And I'm not going to read the entire thing because it's quite a long answer. 
but it, it suggested that it, well, it actually agreed with me. Uh, it said that it is a particularly complex issue and one that uh, is a challenge for today's society. It suggested that critical thinking and cultivating critical thinking in our society was one of the kind of potential solutions to this. Increasing media literacy, uh, having fact-checking organisations that could help vet sources of information, having lots of different diverse sources. So if you rely on just Fox News, for example, if you're in America, you're probably not going to get a balanced, healthy diet of, of media. Um, transparency and accountability, and then other technical tools to try and flag up either inappropriate or more likely just in sort of factually incorrect content. Um, so I'd, I'd welcome any kind of other input here, but it seems to me that we're in this sort of in really interesting in-between stage where we have this phenomenally capable tool, but there's still quite a few obvious flaws with it. And until we resolve some of those flaws, we have quite a tricky situation to potentially navigate. That's brilliant. Thank you, Rob. Um, so we start working our way around the room to get people's views and opinions on it and have a discussion about it. And if we come to you first, Dave. That's a really neat question. Because uh, notoriously, the, the initial sort of LLMs were, were not released, right? For fears of propagation of disinformation. And that OpenAI have often cited that as a risk factor that, that delays their open source publishing. Um, it's definitely an issue, uh, and one of as well as the social media requirements that, that you brought up, Rob. One of the other uh, areas where they have to tackle this kind of now is journalism and real time journalism, um, with continuous blogs and continuous updates that are put out by places like The Guardian when the drone uh, attack happened on the Kremlin a few weeks ago, and also uh, local to me in Cardiff. Um, the BBC were reporting on uh, a accident, a, a tragic kind of electric bike accident that killed two teenagers. Um, and initially they were not certain because it was all based on submitted footage from locals how accurate it could have been and one of the things that i noticed in that live blog is that the bbc have formed a group called bbc verify and so bbc verify are an attempt at that organization to go around and fact check and cross check and i think that they from the blog that they've written up the bbc have done a better job explaining what they're doing than i am but they they have that on two fronts they've got a group of people who are trying to create detection mechanisms that will automatically scan for watermarks or scan for issues in the diffusion, the stable diffusion, image generation, things like that, that they think they can get some traction on, but also it's merged with a OSINT, open source intelligence cross-checking analysis. So if one person sent me the video, maybe not. If five people sent us the video, the metadata all checks out, the timings work out, the, the angles can be corroborated of the event from multiple sources. And that's a human process that's the human verification process you were identifying then you know that that does go a step further towards helping that problem but it doesn't scale the, the bbc have the resources and the responsibilities to do this work but that's not a twitter-sized facebook-sized solution that's a that's a journalism sized solution so obviously categories either side Brilliant. Thank you, Dave. And Sam, have you got any thoughts around it? Yeah, mine's going to be similar to Dave's in regards to it's like the it's like the waiting behind how much ChatGPT and all this content has been AI generated. So it's like, like I said, with a bit of journalism in regards to, oh, who's who's reporting this? Where's the feeds coming from? Like the collaboration on like the imagery and everything. It's like we need to be able to sort of give like a mark of quality 
very dangerous word to say, but like in regards to, oh, these, this, um, we've taken our sources from, sorry, we've taken our information from these sources. Oh, it's all come from this Facebook group or this Twitter feed or where it's coming from and try and source it and give a bit of collaboration, a collaborative effort in regards to, we think this is the real message based on all these different sources and based on the history of those sources, we trust them or don't. But like they've said, like doing that in real time is going to be mind-blowing because it's, it's just not viable. Like, if, well, I say it's just not viable. It is viable, but at what cost and how, and when we're talking about real-time information, like updates happening every second, are we really going to wait a minute, two minutes for that, all that effort to be collaborated and source all that information coming out? So yeah, for me, it's just like, how how do we monitor this and sort of just get that information back to the the person who's reading it that they're not just reading something that's come from potentially a more interesting source i'll use the word interesting rather than another word um <laughs> that's my view brilliant thank you sam and christina is there anything you'd like to add yes so i'd like to speak about two points or like rather two views on journalism first is the professional high quality journalism it does require a lot of um fact-checking and you can trust it much more because these people they have full-time jobs on providing high quality information and especially investigating journalism takes a lot of work that happens behind the scene until you are provided with the information and they do list their sources um, and sometimes they have to protect them uh, but it is a very trusted um, source and even they sometimes use ChatGPT or some other sources uh, to provide the information or to craft their stories or to make it easier to do so. Um, and then we've got the other side of the media, which is vast array of everything. Uh, many people actually get their news uh, from the preferred uh, social media that they are on. So sometimes it is people getting the news from Instagram or from TikTok or from Facebook uh, or from other sources. And uh, well, it is in this case, I do think that the big corporations that are behind, uh, th that are uh, th that are actually providing this content on their platform, um, it would be their job to do some automated fact-checking and at least labeling or flagging some of this information as like not verified or this contradicts some of the other sources. And that would require large-scale large um, implementation of all these uh, fact-checking algorithms. And also I would like to touch upon the deep fakes because we often rely on the videos and the claims of certain people. And wow, that that has improved so much over the last years. And I remember um, every now and then there is a new article or, 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 new, or news about new technology being used to detect deep fake. Uh, but they are just getting progressively better. So we are in this race of catching up with this technology getting all the time better. Um, yeah, so that is my take. Brilliant. Thank you, Christina. And if we come on to Dave's question now, which was how can AI contribute towards sustainability? And again, we'll come to you, Dave, and then we'll circle around the room to get everyone's opinions and views on it. So um, founding NGAI uh, is sort of, driven by a broader interest in sustainability, which has been there for a while. Like I studied environmental science, not computer programming at school. Um, and one of the things, one of the sad side effects of LLMs as well as accuracy and, and sort of faking is, is environmental impact. And there have been some fascinating, terrifying estimates because 
it, the estimates are all we can really go on on the cost of training these LLMs and how much carbon emissions the data centers that run the GPUs are, are, are sending out. And that's tragic and probably factual, um, but pretty difficult to understand. So one of the curiosities that I have is how far can we recoup those losses? We've already spent that money. We've already emitted those carbons. The, the models are trained. Those assets can be loaded up by our machines now. We can work over them with Langchain or we can build stuff around them. But the application in sustainability seems to not be uh, widely explored, in my opinion. Um, so one of the things that I know is happening is that there are work going on to analyze customer footprints and sorry, carbon footprints. Sorry, can I cut that out? There is work going on to analyze the carbon footprint of companies based on their filings, on their financial records, on how they conduct business, taking that free text that exists as a side effect of building a company and trying to attach carbon footprints to it. And that's a great example, not done by me, done by another group I'm, I'm aware of called Metabolic. Um, and uh, that is a really interesting project. And so I'm curious to learn about any other projects that sort of try to give back uh, the burden that we've loaded with uh, these carbon intense processes and see what other projects are out there. So if anyone knows any, please let me know. Brilliant. Thank you, Dave. Um, so again, like last time, if we start working our way around the room and getting people's views and if we come to you first, Sam. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Cause I was looking when, you, when I saw your question, I was looking at more about looking at resource management around the world. So also like carbon background, but like more about mining and mining for oil or mining for like rare mi minerals. Like what's the, how AI can be used to sort of process those. Because we always know all the big business like BP, Shelby have thousands of models and data scientists analyzing what's the value of hitting a, mining a particular mine, uh, oil field out in North Sea or wherever it is. Like my view is like, is how can we, like with the sustainability is is that factor now being fed back into those models sort of thing like all, all these big models have been saying like oh it's we're going to hit this mine uh, oil field sorry um because it's going to make us a lot of money but then like that how are those those new modern sort of ways of thinking like especially like that sort of the green energy sort of stuff feeding back into those in regards to well you could invest or go buy go to this oil field and it would generate this much profit and revenue sorry sorry to bring it back to money they don't like doing that thing normally but like in regards to but like those feedback loops in regard well actually is this investment better going into more sustainable things like looking at wind farms and all the other all the other sorts of green energy out there and looking at like almost that model not just recommended going for this this oil field but recommended almost an alternative and saying off like almost i'd be able to offset like the weight like the energy or the idea of going into those sort of routes that's what i was sort of thinking about it so i think yeah it'd be good to see like ai not just saying this is just, this is a better this this is good to go use this oil for now because it's now the value's gone up more about like saying well, actually maybe not <laughs> or saying alternative not it's ever going to get there because that's all that's, that's beyond what we can do at the moment but like it's that it's that sort of wider thinking about how these AI models sort of feed together, sort of give that sustainability, bring sustainability to the forefront. Brilliant. Thanks, Sam. And Christina, uh, Christina, sorry, I'd be keen to get your views on it. Yes. Uh, so I would go back to Dave's um, initial uh, statement, which was about how like, we already trained these models. It already has all this uh, carbon footprint has been already made. Uh, so how do we benefit the most out of it? And um, well, for the right now, the biggest uh, owners of the um, computational power to provide these models are big corporations. 
now they are driven by their bottom line so and which may also means driving away the competition or making this models their competitive edge so they're not as, in, as interested in making wider use of it however um now open ai comes from like open open science open sourcing and yet chat gpt the gpt4 we haven't seen the weight being shared we have seen only limited information about the models and at this point uh, when there is this big clash between the societal impact and the corporate interests it is the role of the regulators to come into place and set some standards because only they can have this power this impact on the corporations to make it as part of their um, some of the requirements for them, uh, be it based on the funding or being just strict regulation, to open source some of the weights that they have trained. Maybe like a smaller version of their uh, of their models, or because they do have to make profit and they do have to make a, maintain a competitive edge. You can't take that off, but sharing more with the community so that others can make use of those models and can reuse that the, basically the carbon footprint that has been made instead of making it again or not having the costs um, or the, the funds to actually replicate those efforts. So open sourcing those weights and models, I think would be a very good uh, way of um, spreading out this technology and preventing um, burning more uh, CO2 into the air. Thank you, for Christina. And Rob, keen to get your thoughts on it as well. Yeah, I think Christina's point was really interesting because I know I was actually listening to a podcast recently with Mark Zuckerberg and he was at, he's actually exactly done that. So they've built their own LLM. I think it's um, a factor um, smaller um, than like OpenAI's ChatGPT and things, but he's open sourced it. So you can just like load it up. I think they've optimized it as well because it was originally Python and you can now load it up in C++ and run it, I think, on a reasonably powerful laptop, which is pretty cool. Um, but obviously, with significantly lower, I think it's you know significantly lower accuracy and we say complexity than the other ones. Um, so it's good to see that that sort of thing is starting to happen, and that even these big corporations uh, are starting to think like that. When you mentioned your question, two things sprang to mind like immediately, and one was um, innovation. So you mentioned that we train these things and we've ejected all this carbon into the air, and that's true. But if we had managed to transit transition, for example, onto more renewable energy sources, then perhaps training these things wouldn't spit all that carbon into the air in the first place. So if we can use these tools to almost make themselves green through innovation, say like, okay, look, make make a more optimized um, solar panel, for example, and power yourself using that only. Um, and the other thing that sprang to mind was optimization. I know that Google, I think, have started using, well, that's a while ago, used AI to optimize energy consumption in their data centers and reduced energy consumption by something ridiculous, like 40%. So just things like that um, would massively decrease the ongoing burden of, of running this sort of technology. And I think that the sort of balanced approach that people like Musk, whether you love him or hate him, a take, which is saying that we can't just cut out all energy sources. We need to build up, but we do need to be transitioning into a completely renewable kind of energy sector. And if we can use AI to speed up that process and that transition, that's only a good thing. Thank you, Rob. 
it's nice to um, have the reference between Christina and Mark Zuckerberg as well. I'm sure she's pretty happy with that one. And then we can never get too far away from Elon Musk being mentioned with AI either, can we? Um, and if we move into Sam's question now, which was, will regulation cr- uh, control AI's growth and adoption? And if we want to move around after Sam, but Sam, if you want to give your views on that. Yeah, so mine's a little bit more boring compared to the rest of the questions. So it's uh, like, again, opposed to... Uh, Rob, I'm really kind of trying into the conspiracy stuff a bit because I think there's going to be a lot of political tomfoolery around re- uh, regulation in the coming years. But like over the past years, it's like ChatGPT's like become like gone to everyone's lexicon. Like regulation was never going to be far behind. So it's, it's we're hitting that bit now where everyone's going to start getting engaged. And like what is it the EU? Sorry, what is the EU? EU AI Act got approved like during 14th. And just like reading through the paper of that, like they're really focusing on low level stuff. Like just like focusing on like foundational models and everything and not focusing on some of like the real big picture stuff which is like making it quite tricky because like my answer to the question is is honestly no we're not going to get regulation well for this like because our history of it than anything technology we're always massively behind the curve like if you look at gdpr like it was late still kind of underwhelming and we still got issues with privacy of data around the world so it's, it's never gonna regulation is always gonna be hard I think the big thing that's sort of really changing everything is that like the world is like paying an interest in this really early compared to like other things, other technologies when they've landed. And I think there's a big change. Like when you see people like debating it in Congress and the States or like in the EU and all the different courts, like, like there's like a big focus, like understanding, like when you talk about like hundreds of years ago, hundreds of years ago with factories, we're starting to go to automation with like machine, right? It's very obvious, right? If the, the human factor is we're going to get a machine to replace a person. But now we're talking about something, a nebulous concept, something that thinks, which we've taught to think, and how that's going to replace us or replace parts of what we're doing or how it's going to grow with time, which we don't really understand. It's it's completely nebulous compared to anything else we've ever really dealt with. And like, if you look at what's like in social media, like we're only really learning about the impact of social media on society now, really, like compared to what's over the past or 20 years it's been knocking about. So the bit I find quite interesting is that like the big tech is almost split on it. Like so obviously with like Elon Musk, again, we talked about Elon Musk earlier on. <laughs> Elon Musk and Bill Gates sort of do is like shouting for the AI pause, like what's it about a month ago now? And then you've got like open AI obviously pushing to push on forward. It's like even tech can't really agree on where we should be standing on AI. So how is that going to work when you've got people who are voted by the people to sort of judge how AI should be integrated? But like for me, it's I've been sort of trying to break down like what I view it as. So obviously, like looking at the short and long term challenges. So not just looking at like what's going to be affecting us in a week, a month, a year, two, three years, but like how it's going to affect us in like 20, 30 years. But then also like how those are broken down, like the big challenges. So like what societal challenges? So we've, I think everyone knows about like when driverless cars get into the world, um, taxi drivers aren't going to have jobs. So what's the societal impact or like the classic existential dangers, like we can't really talk about AI without mentioning Terminator or the Matrix level threats hitting us and scaring the bejesus out of every person reading the newspaper the next day. Like we joke about it, but those things are going to hopefully not happen. Or, um, but like we need to sort of focus on those. And the sort of one that I'll sort of touch on sort of draw sort of quickly is like the combative challenges, like people using AI against other people. And I'll just sort of leave it there. <laughs> But um, I think for me, it's just like regulation isn't going to stop the growth 
of AI or regulate it well, but maybe we can get some regulation that gives levels the playing field or gives some idea of how we should play together nicely, maybe. That'd be a lovely thing. That's that's me. That's my view. Thank you, Sam. And absolutely not a boring question. I'm really keen to hear everybody's thoughts on it. Uh, if we come to you first, Christina. Can I have a bit time to think about this one particularly? Uh, <laughs> there's so much to reflect on, uh, and I'd like to focus on one of the things. So can can you re- redo this with someone else? Or is- yeah, yeah, of course I can. Um, in that case, I'm going to come over to you, Rob. Hopefully you're ready, and we'll come back to Christina after. See, not a boring question at all, Sam. I'll take the hit. Um, I'll try and like stumble through some response. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's really interesting. I remember um, some one of the VPs, I think, at Facebook being asked if he allows his children to use Facebook, and he said absolutely not. Um, and I think, like you said, it's only now that we're really realising the kind of potential negative impacts of these sort of things. Predominantly, that they're phenomenally addictive, right? And it's the question mark is what amazing good is it going to bring but also what amazing negativity is it going to bring because at the end of the day it's like a tool you give a chimp a gun he might shoot you by accident or he might go and feed himself easier you never really know which way round it's going to go and it's a similar sort of idea we've got this amazingly powerful tool um we think we understand how it works but probably there's a lot of black box element to it still especially with these really large models um what's sort of lurking there we've already i've already heard of plenty of people sort of sound the alarm saying this thing's already conscious um, I personally don't fall into that camp. I think that it's a very impressive prediction engine, but I don't think it's actually a, a conscious entity at the moment. But are we going to get there? You know, are we just uh, a couple of factors below um, being able to create something which is classed as conscious? Again, I don't actually fall into that camp, but could be. Um, and and so should we be prep- preparing now for these sort of eventualities? And the problem with legislation, like you said, is is that we're usually playing catch up rather than being proactive we're always being reactive i actually think often it's legal cases uh, and some when things go wrong which then drive change and ideally we don't want to wait for things to go wrong before we then make a change but sadly that's the way uh, things tend to go and then finally i guess i'll just touch upon the sort of wider societal impact i think the danger of a little bit like the industrial revolution the danger of replacing kind of the cognitive side of the like economic value. Like if you think of the, the UK economy right now, a lot of it is services, like financial services or tech services, which is a lot of it is cognitive. It's like high thought process stuff. If you start automating away a lot of that, which again, we're getting close. I don't think we're there yet, but we are getting close to. And certainly a lot of the kind of repetitive elements you can automate now with these large language models. Um, what impact is that going to have? Like mass unemployment? Are there going to be replacement jobs? Is it going to create new jobs? Um, so a lot of questions that we should really be addressing, I think, sooner rather than later. Brilliant. Thank you, Rob. And Dave, there's a lot to digest there with Sam and Rob. But if we get your opinion on it as well, then we'll come over to Christina. Uh this is a really interesting one because I think that we can, as a as an AI practitioner, as an AI industry, I think we can be comparatively proud compared to the failures that have gone before. And this is obviously a you know your mileage might vary. I'm just an idiot on the internet, but um, the precursors for these kind of problems, uh, if you look at the fangs and the social medias the Cambridge Analytica leak and then a bunch of other stuff coming through from that social media sort of harms emotional issue kind of thing uh horrible terrible side effects of and dangers of using that platform 
people, Zuckerberg, all those troop of troop of clowns, they got drawn up in front of various reporting bodies at various points in time and basically told off after the damage had occurred. Uh, so if we take that as the precursor 10 years ago, precursor for the last five years for these kind of scenarios has been, uh, sorry, the precursor for <laughs> uh, these kind of things for the last five years has been crypto, right? And so you've had all the uh, the Binance people and Sam Bankman, I'm going to get them mixed up now, Sam Bankman Freed, isn't it, is, uh, is the crypto guy who had his crazy Cayman Islands scam um, and again, they were pulled up when the massive harm materialized after the hype cycle had occurred. Um, and you look at the AI now, and obviously Elon and Bill uh, are very understandably, I, I rate Bill as a as a person. Um, I think he's one of the better tech moguls, um, reasonably asking for a pause for a moratorium uh, due to risks that they foresee. Risks have not happened yet, but they are aware of them. They are trying to head them off before they occur. And obviously, Sam Altman, again, uh, OpenAI CEO, um, he has taken a different approach. Again, he is heading off the issues before they occur. And he is obviously selling us OpenAI. He's obviously selling us ChatGPT. But he is trying to preemptively bring that conversation up with a relatively large amount of sort of investment he is going more towards the regulators preemptively and saying we we are going to make you a problem the problem is going to exist and if it's not us it's going to be someone else that is going to be a problem but we need you to prepare for it now and he's going on a sort of campaign of education a campaign of uh, sort of pushing the agenda forwards so that it can happen with the least possible damage and going around these countries and trying to talk to the prime ministers because he has the clout to do that uh, trying to engage them in this conversation that may lead to conversations of universal basic income. Maybe that's a solution. Uh, it's, it's been talked about before AI. It could be talked about after AI. That might actually be something to move into. But that's sort of my hopefulness about the regulation question, Sam, is as an industry, we're doing better at being diligent than most of the historical industries before us. And it's probably going to go wrong. But you know, there are so many conversations happening now. Timit Gerberu at Google, for instance, if you want to look up another AI preemptive or no, well, current warrior in terms of being responsible about what we're doing. Um, these conversations are happening before the damage. And I think that's really, really good of AI as, a, as an industry. Um, anyway, yeah, that's my soapbox. I'll get off it now. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. And finally, we'll come back to you, Christina. Yeah, so when I think of Sam's question, it brings to my mind uh, the uh, book of Katie O'Neill uh, that came, in 2000, uh, came out in 2016. It's called Weapons of Math uh, Destruction. Um, and it talks about um, using mathematical tools uh, for all sorts of areas um, as like education, hiring, credit score, uh, planning, uh, law enforcement, and, and many, many other areas. And previously, AI um, or like mathematical models have been mostly used almost like blindly and were just trusted. Yeah, these, this is mathematics. It cannot be biased. And it was because the data is biased and uh, that has been ingrained in the models. So we've come a long way from 2016 and like the time before that when now the 
AI and the, the modeling is being used in a conscious way. So we know that there is bias in the data. We know that there is something uh, that we need to look out for. And no, it um, the regulation is finally coming into place, but no, it hasn't stopped the use of AI in different industries. In fact, we see that it is penetrating even more industries. However, it is in a more conscious way. And as I'm seeing, um, regulators are doing better when technical people are part of the regulative pro regulatory process. So um, recently there was a call by OECD um, uh, to um, have um, self-appointed um, uh, specialists in AI apply for being part of these discussions and uh, working groups on AI fairness, uh, maybe uh, getting the commercialization of AI uh, for small and medium enterprises and so on and so forth. So it is better when there are technical people in hand because they know what are the threats and uh, what is likely to happen. At the same time, what they've mentioned just uh, previously, when big tech companies are coming to regulators and say, hey, this is going to be a problem. And uh, these and you need to watch out for these and these things. And these are the proposed solutions. Well, yeah, usually the proposed solutions is something that works for the company. Uh, so there has to be you know, a bunch of other <laughs> uh, rounds towards looking into those problems uh, in with more unbiased eye. Uh, but in short, no, I don't think that AI is going, that regulators are going to stop the proliferation of AI. We do play catch up, but when more players from more areas join in, we having a better chance and making it a more fair game. Thank you, Christina. And we'll continue with you and we'll come on to your question, which was, how do we improve the reliability of ChatGPT? And I'm keen to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, so I was thinking of how to phrase this specific question and um, and actually um, do we talk about models in general or in particular. So it's, since ChatGPT is something that has been on the mind and uh, everywhere in the media recently, this is what I want to talk about. Um, so probably a lot of you have heard about the story of an American lawyer that had filed a case um and with lots of very very detailed references uh to previous cases uh, on which he has built his case and then when the court committee went uh, through those references well it turned out that they weren't in the database uh they came to the guy and asked him so what's up uh where are these can you explain yourself and uh, he admitted to using chat gpt now uh i'm sure he's not this is not the only story and this happened in many other cases and in corporations as well um but the thing is uh let's think about how what were these large language models how are they built well they are built to predict the next word that is meaningful for the sentence or like all all the words that came before they're not built to provide factually correct information and hence they're not built to be the search engines it coming up with stuff is basically their feature but we are using this tool in a different way we are using it a bit of a search engine as well so now we need to deal with these hallucinations because we are using this tool in not the kind of originally intended way or not in, okay it's not like it wasn't intended it was built out there and given to people to use and we make use of it in different ways that is beyond uh, what it was designed for so how what are what are the different 
technical uh, aspects, the strategies to reduce these hallucinations. Uh, because we are using it as a search engine, we are relying on it in many ways uh, to help in everyday lives and in business. So I looked through different um, uh, documents and articles, uh, what is actually being used at the moment. Um, so I would uh, list four different strategies. So first is um, the output of uh, the large language models is often cross-checked with the regular search results. So that's what Microsoft is doing and Google is doing. Um, so just cross cross-checking it with the regular search and making sure that this information is correct. And if it's not correct, you just replace it with the one. Uh, with the uh, with the correct result. Um, now, the second option is uh, connecting chatbots to databases. So it's either open databases like Wikipedia, or these are some corporate databases. And there are many tools out there spinning out on the market, how you can connect your uh, chatbot to the specific databases uh, so that you get a correct, correct, factually correct information and then you can use the capabilities of uh, ChatGPT. Third is the reinforcement learning with uh, human feedback. Now, where you use GPT, ChatGPT as agent or some other li large language model, it is your agent uh, and um, whatever the output it gives, uh, humans go and correct it in case it is wrong. So if we are talking about use cases where we use ChatGPT for uh, mental health care, um, it would th there would have to be psychiatrists and specialists sitting with these models and then making sure that they give um, the correct unbiased uh, um, output and also that is not likely to harm people. Um, so then this is fed back into the system. And then the next time the, the system is going to be giving more uh, desirable results. And then there is a range of, of methods, uh, approaches without any external input. And uh, two articles came to my mind. There was one by MIT uh, where they present society of minds. So they just use different uh, chat GPT agents and get them debate each other until they arrive to the correct answer. And then they set them to, to different levels of agreeableness or being more stubborn. And then they find when these um, agents are more stubborn, the debate lasts a bit longer, but they might all arrive to a correct answer, even if all of them were wrong at the beginning, which I find very, very fascinating. Uh, and then uh, there's a working a group, a research group at Cambridge that held they have self-checked GPT, where they have one model and you ask it multiple times uh, the same question, uh, and then it reflects on its previous answers. And in if these answers are consistent, then it's more likely to be factually correct. And if it is um, coming up with different answers, uh, most likely it's making stuff up. And then you ask it to reflect whether it was right, it might doubt itself, and it still might arrive at some uh, reasonable answer that is closer to the factually correct one. Brilliant. Thank you, Christina. And if we come over to you first, Rob, to get your views on it. Yeah, this is a really interesting question. And I guess it's actually, at its heart, a really technical question. So. Um, about four years ago, I did um, what was called a nano degree in deep learning. 
and I trained an AI to generate Simpsons scripts and the output was hilarious and ridiculous. Um, in fact, I've got some early attempts at like language generation one for a Harry Potter chapter, which is hilarious because some Death Eaters end up kissing each other, um, which I can send you the link after because it's a really good read. Um, but my understanding, without being able to actually dive under the hood and look at the code, my understanding is that essentially this is what these LLMs like ChatGPT are doing, but on steroids. They're using the transformer model, which I'm actually not personally haven't used, um, but I understand it, it just sort of takes into account a lot more context. So rather than just looking at the last 10 words, which was said, you've got you know whole paragraphs of text, which can be taken into context when you're generating output. But fundamentally, what you said, you know, they're, they're just looking at what's gone before they've been trained on a huge corpus of data and they're predicting the most appropriate next word right which could be in the case of this lawyer a very impressive sounding but completely made up case um so the question is i have heard sam altman say that they're looking at potentially hooking in the next models or versions of their model into like the web so to be able they can query data as it comes so they kind of leave a placeholder to say there is a factory needed here and they'll fill it in later which seems to be the natural direction that this sort of thing would go because google is already a phenomenally useful tool the only problem with that would be i guess do you know where that data is coming from because if it's all coming from wikipedia you're still relying on a single source which we all hope wikipedia is a really good and reliable source but maybe an article isn't very trustworthy Again, you still need some element of being able to fact check what's been filled in. Um, so I, I, it's a really interesting one um, in terms of just training a model which is more accurate, especially because they tend to scrape huge amounts of data. I think we're currently on 2021 data um, for the current version of, of ChatGPT. So if you want to keep it up to date and keep it factually correct without hooking in things like web requests after the fact, my guess is that you'd need to constantly retrain it with updated data and then have a mechanism to make sure that facts produced were actually sourced from the source data rather than just sort of predicted, um, which appears to me like a whole different kind of piece of tech than the fundamental model itself. So, um, yeah, I, I think I need to do another degree and a bit more code review before I can give you any better answer than that. <laughs> Hopefully some more videos similar to Death Eaters kissing each other, though, Rob. <laughs> At least they'll be fun to watch. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Dave, I'm really curious to hear your uh, to hear your thoughts on it as well. That was a really neat set of uh, solutions there, Christina. And in a way, I'd kind of, if you've got some articles, if you could ping them over, I'd be interested in knowing a lot more about about the details of those uh, processes. Um, if if I was to try and abstract this into a pseudocode kind of problem, it would be how rapidly can you gain validated positive or negative feedback is sort of the, the the way we make this better. Like if you have a use case where you can very rapidly work out if the answer is valid or invalid, that's going to make that use case miles more accurate, miles faster. And if you have a really slow feedback, then you're going to have a use case which is probably never going to really get there. And so for instance, Google search, you've got a or the, the replacement for search that, that chat GPT and the large language models are starting to serve is a really poor use case for rapid feedback because by definition, you're looking for something you don't know. Therefore, none of the parties involved in that interaction really know what the right thing is. And that was the case that you, you pointed out with your lawyer. Your lawyer didn't go back and check that those cases existed, got caught out for it, and the feedback happened far later when the judge just laughed at him. Um, but then... Um, if you take uh, a scenario 
that where it could get really, really fast, really quickly. So how accurate can we make it for a particular use case? I reckon that the next huge application hand up, you know, open source licenses have a huge issue with code generation. Understand why. If you don't, you can Google it to listeners. Um, there are issues there politically. But um, if you take it purely in a programming scenario, it's very reasonable to expect large language models that are in a code generation use case to be able to potentially spin up a Docker instance inside its own runtime, execute the code, or at least validate that the code compiles if you're using Rust, and then it can go, man, I was wrong. I just hallucinated a whole package. And then it catches it before it even gets back to you, right? And and we're seeing that slightly with Copilot now. It will do some introspection. It will go, right, well, you're using this package. You're probably looking for something related to Django. For instance, it was working with me on a Django application. It was like, hey, did you see this bootstrap styling package? You probably want that next. And that's sort of an indication of, of where it can get really accurate really quickly is because unit tests, function tests, all these kind of things that we take for granted as programmers, we can stick this into the learning loop for code generation as an application. And so I think that we'll find a stratification of how fast the feedback can be validated means how accurate that use case can get and how slow that feedback loop might be or how unclosed that might be forever, such as search. We'll see that probably languish around for a long time. Um, and that's one of the things that you pointed out that I'd like to really emphasize was a really good observation. I think that LLMs as a search tool is not the killer application of this technology. I think the killer applications technology is going to be something that can learn from itself really fast in whatever application that actually is. Thank you, Dave. And last but by no means least, we'll come over to you uh, to yourself, Sam. Yeah. So for me, it's similar to Dave. Like I'm a I'm an engineer at heart, so I'm always going to look at like the data and how the quality of that is judged. So um, like Christina said, like you almost want to be validating the quality of data you've got coming in. Now, the sort of leverage of the LLMs is you're hitting it with such a vast volume of data that your bits at the extremes of your, the, the extreme edge, edges of your data quality, where it's, it's either lies or made up or whatever it is, or I've got very extreme views. Like they almost get washed out by the, the stuff that happens in the middle, almost like the standard deviation bell curve sort of stuff. So you're, you're the main bit in the middle will generally where you lie. But you need the extremes to know what the extremes are, but you don't want the extremes to be in fairly weight in the stuff that happens in the middle. So going back to your point about like the lawyer using a data using ChatGPT and not really knowing the quality of data sources, I think this avenue of like you're going to use an LLM, but what data source is poking into is potentially going to be like an avenue go, which is like actually yeah, I want it to be hitting the web, or no, I want to be happy hitting this almost this day i'm looking at law so i want to hit the law data set and just this very very strict very well regulated law data set and so you don't get like a made-up reference to a case that never happened or it was it was in a book or something that didn't really happen that sort of thing and then the other bit like um i think everyone said was like that feedback loop at the end that's all that judging the quality of the result of like it said this now how how trusting of that result can i be of it and almost like not just taking it as verbatim that ChatGPT give me an answer for a, whatever question I've answered, I, I want to answer, like almost fact checking it and going like, well, actually, that's not so great. And that's not so great. And almost being able to sort of feed that back and say like, well, these bits weren't great. Where did you get that from? And maybe you can not leverage that bit back, but that requires, again, vast amounts of people judging the data sets, which then almost doubles or triples the data set you've got now, because you've now got 
the original data set and now people judging that data set, which it now needs to feed back into the original. It's just an iterative nightmare of, and like, like it won't, like it, it's going to cost, it cost a bomb to do that. But it's, I think that's where we're going to need to go with it really to sort of have that level of trust and that what you're getting from ChatGDP is going to be meaningful and that you can actually use it at the other side. Thank you very much, Sam. And just to extend that, thanks to everybody for taking time out of their busy schedules today and sharing their thoughts and coming together for the All Things AI podcast. Some very interesting comments um, and conversations. And thank you very much for coming on. So just to kind of go through the people that we've had on the podcast today, we've had Rob Sanders from Fluff Software, David Parr from NGAI, Sam Costello from IVC Evidentia, and Christina Sinkovich from Small Robot Company. If you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a podcast, please feel free to drop me a message. And finally, if you're hiring for new technical roles or looking for a new role, please feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. I'm Luke Vickers, and you can find me on LinkedIn, or you can email me at luke.vickers at evolutionjobs.co.uk. Thanks again to all our guests, and thank you very much for listening. We hope you can join us next time.